Hello, my name is Chris Ryan. My name's Andy Greenwald. And we are the co-hosts of The Watch, a pop culture podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. We are on Mondays and Thursdays. We mostly talk about TV, movies, music, pop culture. Jeremy Renner, house flipping, the papacy, Reese Weatherspoon dancing at wedding videos. We used to talk about Kanye West. He's, he's in the like timeout corner right now, though. Never, ever talk about Christine Baranski. You can listen to The Watch on Mondays and Thursdays on SoundCloud, iTunes, anywhere you get podcasts. Subscribe now. And thanks for listening. It's a good hang. Welcome to the Ringer NFL Show. My name is Robert Mays. I'm a writer at the Ringer. Joining me on the other line, it's Mike Lombardi. Mike, how are you? I'm great, thank you. How are you, Robert? I am doing very well. Uh, this is going to be our last show before we kind of go into hibernation a little bit for the offseason. Uh, we're going to chat Super Bowl, me and you, for a little bit, kind of look forward for New England and Atlanta. And then Danny Kelly is going to welcome us a little bit later, and that's all we're going to have. But I'm excited to do this. I definitely wanted to get your take on things now that we've been able to step back a little bit, hopefully be able to rewatch the game. Although the coach's film is not on Game Pass, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. But even watching the broadcast angle again, I picked up some stuff I didn't the first time. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the video guys, it take a little while to get back in the office to load the tape up. But, uh, you know, it was an interesting game, to say the least, in terms of how that how it played out and the, and the obstacle and, and the way everything happened for New England. It had to be, I think, if you play that scenario, nine minutes to go in the game, you're up 20 you're down 28 to 9 i think 9 out of 10 times you're going to lose that game and going back and watching it are there a couple plays that maybe you didn't think had as much importance in the moment as you do now well i think when you look back the number one thing the lack of the face mask call on logan ryan on the sideline on the completed pass when jake matthews was holding on sanu when jake yeah. matthews was holding i mean that would have been offsetting and i think that kyle shanahan and the falcons would have regained their senses and tried to run it there and try to to get uh to get three or four more yards and that would have put him in a field goal range at that point so I think that play was significant I think when you break down the tape I think you, the realization that that they kind of fooled Brady a little bit every time they've gone to a bunch formation in the past Atlanta locked the receivers on uh, locked their corners on the receivers and on the interception return for a touchdown was the first time they hadn't done it pretty much all season and they got the pick six. So you could see that Brady wasn't that he was confused with the coverage. It just went against the trend that had happened. So those couple plays, but the game, the game, the way the game went was completely against what I thought it was going to do. I thought New England would be the team to get the lead. I thought Atlanta would come storming back and New England would have to hold on. I didn't see it the other way around. Yeah, I thought said the same thing. I mean, I'm sitting there next to Kevin Clark during the game and I said, I did not envision this. I thought the New England could blow them out. I didn't think they would, but I didn't see a scenario where Atlanta could because I just thought the Patriots would be able to move the ball consistently. No matter how they chose to do it, I thought they would. And Atlanta's defensive game plan was both fantastic and extremely well executed early. I mean, the speed with which they were playing was pretty remarkable. Right, but the problem was with Atlanta, they play two coverages. They play what we call cover six, which is a weak side, three deep zone, and they play that differently than they play their man-to-man. And so what they were doing a good job of was trying to confuse the Patriots. So if you ran a cover mm-hmm. one beater, for example, against their cover six, it didn't work as well as if you ran a cover six beater against it. So they did a good job of mixing it up. But the problem they ran into, and this is what happens, and most fans don't see this, because the defensive backs, if you play a lot of man-to-man in the game, and their cover six and their cover their cover one are basically man-to-man defenses, only their, their middle of the field is closed, 
you get tired on defense. It would yeah. be like LeBron James playing 48 minutes all the time because you're playing defense. The, what happens, the receivers substitute out. So it's a hockey line at receivers. And sometimes the receivers know it's a running game. They take the playoff. The corners and the defensive backs, they don't know it's, they don't know it's a playoff. So they got to get a lot of effort and a lot of exertion every single play. And they wore down. I mean, 93 plays on the play sheet, not counting the penalties. You know, it's, that, that really wore down. And as the game went on, I think that you you obviously because they didn't milk the clock because they didn't utilize the, the they didn't realize their opponent was no longer the Patriots it was the clock they gave New England that one opening. Well, let's talk about that in a minute. I, I, the point about the man coverage is fascinating because it also plays into a couple different things. One, you're totally right, and a lot of man beaten man coverage beating routes and plays that you have to defend when teams know you're going to play a man sort of coverage. There's a lot of crossers. And there's a lot of plays where you're going to have to traverse a lot of ground. So on top of having to actually stick with people man-to-man, which is tiring, you're also just moving a lot. You're covering a lot of space while doing that. So you saw that left and right. Two, I think that with that ability to kind of confuse Brady at the line and not allow him to make instantaneous decisions, you saw Atlanta using a lot of twists. They were just getting guys in and out of gaps, moving a ton, and that tires defensive linemen out. When Grady Jarrett's got to go from the backside A gap to the playside C gap, that's a long way for a 300-pound man to go. And they were doing that a lot. And it was working in a way because they had that extra second because Brady wasn't making those split decisions. But you're right. Eventually, when you do that over and over and over again, you're going to get tired. Right. It's and what happens when you do that stunning? I think what you saw was Shaq Mason didn't play very well. Played his probably his worst game of the season. They were really soft and tentative in the offensive line for the Patriots. Nate Solder yeah. might have had one of his worst games. I mean, Dwight Freeney looked like he was reincarnated again, and he was beating him with the spin move. And and really, Solder's confidence was worn down as the game went along. And so those movement when you move like they did, like for the first sack of the game, when when. Uh, when when they sacked him on the play action pass, Mason wasn't set, and yeah. you know Courtney Upshaw was able to just overpower him. And then the next play was a coverage sack. The next sack they had was a coverage sack. And then the goal line, the third the third down play in the goal line was another coverage sack. So yeah. there was times where Brady was holding onto the football, but the Falcon defensive line played far better than I think anyone in New England thought they would play, and I'm sure anyone in Atlanta thought they would play. They just ran out of gas. They did, and the the, Mac, the Mason thing was interesting. I thought that they got him on the move a lot, and that was good. He got beat on, I think, another Jarrett sack where he also ended up as the outside guy in a play-action scheme. So they got him on the outside more than Cannon in terms of taking advantage, and that makes sense because in pass protection, Cannon was fantastic. Vic Beasley was absolutely erased in this game. Even when they, he was yeah, one no, he didn't make he, any- he did nothing. Right, it, but the stunning does affect you because what happens is you've got to pass it off. And when a guy like Shaq yeah. Mason, who played in a run-oriented offense, the one of the things that creates problems for him is passing things off. And then, you know, they 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 couldn't really run the football in New England. New England was getting beat off the snap count. The first third down play, Martellus Bennett gets beat off the snap count, gets pushed three yards in the backfield. You know, and and those third and ones come back to haunt you when you don't convert those. So. Look, New England was fortunate. I think they were, they, you know, Brady was sensational, but I think New England was benefited by, and look, when you put those graphics up there that it says you are a 99.5% chance of winning the game, you need help to win the game. And Atlanta gave them the help they needed. Yeah, when I was watching that drive over again, the play calls weren't as much a problem for me. I think the run, not running on second down, 
when you're on the 23 is, is a problem. I get why they didn't. They were struggling short yardage. In my the thing that hurts the most for if you're a Atlanta fan watching that game over again is the amount of time left on the play clock every single time they snapped it down the stretch. Right. I mean, well, they didn't the, realize their opponent was the Patriots. They, they didn't yeah. realize their opponent was the clock. They thought it yeah. was still the Patriots. And at some point, when you're up eight, when you're up sixteen points and two 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 point conversions, you've got to do it. And and you just didn't realize that. That's why game situations are so important. And what the Patriots were so fascinating that this is how well the Patriots are prepared. The Patriots during the week had a period they worked on on Thursday and Friday during the week where they had a two point play period. Yeah. You go in the game typically in a game where just you have one two point player, maybe yep. two. The Patriots yep. had two days of practicing, and what's fascinating about their practices is some of those plays they ran in the game didn't look good in practice, and yet they fixed them, they educated them, and they put the Kevin Falk play in, they put the Amadolas the quick screen in that scored the touchdown. And if you remember, early in the third quarter, they ran the Amadola quick screen, and it got blown up for a three yard loss. And yet, when at the end of the game, when they ran it, when they ran it a little differently because they threw the ball immediately, it was it was a, it, it won the game for them. It was the biggest play of the season, and I think everybody on the Patriots sideline was holding their breath because they ran the play earlier in the game. It got blown up. They did. It really wasn't a great looking play in practice, but it was one of their two point plays, and they ran it. It's really interesting because I had a conversation with Brandon LaFell last week and we were talking just about Brady and practice and kind of how in tune he is with the scheme. And he was telling me a story about how when they played Green Bay a couple years ago, remember that game in Green Bay? Yeah, and sure. It, so he caught what was kind of a back shoulder throw touchdown near the pylon. And apparently they had worked on it all week during practice and it just looked like shit. And they were, they were, they, uh, I think McDaniels asked him to work on it after practice ended. And Brady was like, nah, like, you know, we got it. And, and LaFell's like, are you sure? Like, I don't think we got it. And in the game, it worked. And that's just such yeah. a, I, I think a lot of teams with plays that don't work in practice, they'll toss them out. But the fact that New England just has such a unique faith in the way they choose to do things and how much they work on them, that says something about them. I don't think a lot of teams would run a two point play that didn't work all week in the most pivotal spot in the entire season. I think they would probably do something different when, if that situation presented itself. Well, yeah, and I think the fact that they took time out of their uh, during their week to practice two-point plays says a lot about Belichick's preparation and how he visualizes the game. I mean, you know, like I wrote about, his whole emphasis is trying to figure out in the first quarter what the plan is. And once he can figure out what the plan is, then he can adapt it. But what, he, what he's really brilliant at besides that is the fact that he kind of has a sense of where the game might go. It's going to come. It might come down to a two-point play because you, look, let's face it, you're sitting there, and you know Atlanta can score. And if you know if you hold Atlanta to under 30, it's probably a really good defensive effort. And you know you can score. And so yeah. essentially, it's going to come down to who's going to who's going to make the two-point play. Who's going to make it up? Do you anticipate missing field goals or extra points? No, but I think that their preparation was pretty remarkable when it came to that. The other That's play right. I thought that we didn't talk about was the Shea McKellen. I, I didn't understand that call because when I watched it again on the tape, he was not aligned over the center and he was not on the line of scrimmage. He timed it perfectly. Yeah, and I don't I know why that was any that different time. than other ones I've seen. Yeah, I don't. And if you take that point off, then it changes the game a little bit and it changes all those other things that it kind of has an effect, but it wasn't called. It was called the other way, so... The one I would look back on, remember that the, so first of all, I wanted to ask you this, when they did the trick play to Edelman and they threw with that yeah. the, the wide receiver pass, Belichick knows in that scenario, if McDaniels calls that, that he's going to go for on fourth down, correct? That's no not question. a, he, that, okay. That, 
that was a decision already made. I mean, he, yeah. he said, you know, here's the conversation probably went like this. Look, Belichick said, let's run the trick play because we got fourth down to go for it. Yeah, that's nothing that's what happens I on the field. Nothing happens on the field through the headset. I mean, Belichick's not a head coach who's not listening to the calls or not yeah. interjecting his You know, he's not challenging the call saying, I don't run that. He's like, he's suggesting things. He's watching the game. He's a true head coach. He's not just worried about the defense. He's worried about the entire game. Yeah, and that's because when you make that choice, I mean, I think that's kind of obvious. And the other thing, the another third down throw that I look back on, so Brady missed the throw to Edelman on that drive where they scored, kicked the field goal eventually, but then he hits Bennett on an absolutely beautiful throw down when Bennett kind of bends it back to the corner as they go toward right. the goal line. That was one of his best throws of the day. And I think when he hits the, that, that's really when he locked in. That was the first 50-50 ball they came down with the whole day. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, when you really break it down, Kogan had a chance early in that drive when they got the ball back with, with down eight. He throws a strike to Hogan. Hogan just doesn't adjust to the ball down the field. Yeah. James White on the first drive of the game or the second drive of the game has a chance to come down with the ball, can't come down with it. You see Bennett had a chance to come down with another, couldn't come down with. They had a lot of jump balls. He misses Edelman on a wheel route that, that, that he threw. There was a lot of plays on that tape when you watch it again that the Patriots' execution wasn't precise for three quarters. And then in the fourth quarter, it got really good because they so, got tired. Absolutely. All right, I, uh, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit, though, because before we get out of here, I kind of want to look forward a tiny bit because I think that both of these teams face very unique off-seasons. I want to start with New England because I think that you're in a – a particularly good spot to talk about it. They are, have $65 million in cap room, which is right. third in the league to the two worst teams in the league that have retained none of their players in Cleveland and San Francisco. So it's not surprising at all. New England is surprising. Part of the reason that this is a reality is that they have 20 free agents. And I think that the two guys that are at the top of that conversation, three guys probably are Bennett, Hightower and Butler. And I just wanted to ask you quickly what you think is the most likely scenario for all three of those guys. Well, I think you got to put Alan Branch in there too, because I think Alan yes. Branch played really well. Yeah. I, I think Alan I, Branch will probably, they'll feel like they'll get him at maybe a reduced rate because he's kind of bounced around the league. But to me, he was a cornerstone of their defense. And he was, see, his play really was significant in how, why they won. I would say they have to get Butler signed. They're going to have to put some money into Butler. They're going to have to get him signed. And, and, and let me just start off by saying this cap room's a reflection of how many guys, how good your team is. What makes this so unique about New England is they have 65 million. They have a good basis, but a lot of their key players are free agents. That's why yes. they have so much cap room. Yep. It isn't because they've just had this design. I mean, you know, the last off season it was, you know, do we sign Jamie Collins? Do we sign Malcolm Butler? Do we sign Jabal Sheard? Do we sign Allen? You know, it was all those decisions, and they just kept putting back off. Now, they re-signed Cannon, which keeps their offensive line intact for another year, which is a good thing. And that re-signing him before this offseason, I think, was a big deal. Because I think if he well, is had able to... Because you, you look at... There, there, there's a lot of right tackles out there. The Ryan, they're not great right tackles, but there's a lot of them out there. And you see what some of the guys have gotten... They felt like they needed to sign Cannon, and he's starting to play to the level that they've always expected that he could play. Remember, Cannon was a guy that should have been maybe a, a second-round pick, but because of the leukemia, he had a sli he slipped to the fifth round. He's finally playing to that level. So I, I really think, Robert, what they're going to do is they're going to they're going to sit there and they're going to weigh the market like they always do, and I think they're going to go after Butler, realizing there's not going to be a corner. I mean, Logan Ryan has probably played himself away from a New England contract. Somebody's yeah. going to give Logan Ryan more money than New England's going to give him. And I think that's how they're going to balance it. Shear, you know, do they sign Shear? Do they, do they get somebody else to the market? It's going, to be a, it's going to be a challenge 
what they do. And then they've got the Garoppolo situation. How do they handle that? You know, that's another asset that you add to the $65 million because do they trade him? Do they utilize his picks? I, I think New England is going to be in a situation where Belichick is going to recraft the team, and it might not be as good of a team next year, but it's going to be a better team in 2018 than it will be in 16. I wrote today about kind of the two biggest questions I thought were pressing against them. One was Garoppolo, obviously. Two, just what they did with the money. And my kind of quick summation of it that just made the most sense to me. You know, you don't know locker room politics necessarily. I thought that if they were to maybe franchise Martellus Bennett, give themselves some flexibility and wait until Gronk hits that $11 million next year and they make a decision on that. If they re-sign Hightower, which they've shown a willingness to do with linebackers who hold that kind of standing on the roster. They did it with Mayo. And then they signed Butler because he's restricted. It's probably going to depress his value a little bit. Those are kind of the, the quick thoughts that I had. And then Branch and Blunt, I just said, will be back on cheaper deals and they would get anywhere else. I just assume both yeah. of those guys would be back. Well, I thought that, you know, last year when we had Akeem Hicks out there, we thought we could get him for a decent deal. Yeah. And it ended up being Chicago paid him. And it came down to the, well, we were trying to sign Akeem Hicks back. And, and Chicago came down and just paid him more than what the value was. If you, I mean, if you put Akeem Hicks, if you had signed Akeem Hicks, and I think Branch, they would just kind of let see what happens. But because Branch played so well, and they really could use that big physical defensive tackle inside, I, I think Branch is a key component. Now, you got there's some risk involved with signing that and giving him a lot of money. But they signed him to a two-year deal after we signed him in 14. I think he's a key signing. I think whether you what you do with Hightower is going to be the most fascinating because Hightower is a very good player, and especially when the games are big. Yeah, you look at his Denver Conference Championship game two years ago. He was one of the best players on the field. You look at the Super Bowl when he set the edge on the outside and he rushed the passer. He was one of the best players on the field. I think the role for Hightower is at the end of the line. He's a Sam backer rushing more than he is in space and playing in a stack. Yeah, and I think that that's where they value. The question comes is durability. Is he's always going to miss certain amount of time of games, and how much are you willing to pay for that? I think Hightower will be a priority for him. I think Butler will be one. And I think the other ones will be based on the market value. And the high tower thing is interesting because, like I said, they re-signed Mayo to a kind of a market-setting deal because of what he gave them overall, the same way high tower does. But they kind of got bit with the Mayo contract. I mean, he wasn't on the field a lot, so you give him right. that well, huge that, amount of money, and he's hurt all the time. Right. I mean, the Mayo deal ended up really being a bad deal for New England, and and, and only because because Mayo had to play stack backer, and, and then he lost his effectiveness on on passing downs, which then kept him off the field. Yeah. Whereas Hightower is can be ineffective at the end of the line. He's more of a Sam backer. He can play in the stack, but I think what you saw as the season went on, Van Noy played better as a sub backer. McKellen played better as a sub backer, and Hightower played better as a rusher. So I think that's the way it would go. Hightower is a vital part of what they do. And his rushing ability keeps him out of that Mayo category because there's a place for him on third down. That's a really good point. And then with Grappo, is there any way they don't trade him? It seems like it would kind of be irresponsible not to if you assume Brady's going to be around. Well, look, I mean, I, I think that you have to make it. It's all based on the deal. And I, I think that, look, I think t when time is on your side, you don't trade him. Uh, my sense of it would be is, look, unless somebody came in with a really good offer, why would we get rid of him? Because we do have him for next year. 
and you're dealing with a guy who's 40 years old, and no one can predict the future on a 40-year-old quarterback. Yeah, I know point. Brady's remarkable, and he and he scrambled for one of the longest games in the Super Bowl, and he's done an incredible job. But we've all seen these guys that get to the end of the cliff that there's no gradual descent. There's just a drop, and I think you have to protect yourself. Now, if the right deal comes along, you go ahead and make the right deal. But I don't get the sense that they're going to be out there saying, like they were with Matt Castle, somebody take him. Will somebody take him, please? Do you want him? Do you want him? Do you want him? I think this is more of going to be a reflection of, is this the right deal? What's the value? And then you never do – people don't do this. They say, well, you can trade them for this. When you when you trade them for a draft pick, you have to put a name of a player or a potential player that you're going to get for them because the draft picks turn into players. So if you trade Garoppolo for the 12th pick overall in the draft, then you have to look and see, okay, this is the type of player we would be getting. Will we do that? If we traded them for the top of the second round, this is the type of player we would be getting. Will we do it for that? And I think that's how you have to value his trade because he is, and people say, well, Lombardi, you're just shilling for Belichick. No, I I liked Garoppolo when I was in Cleveland. I think Garoppolo, and when I went to New England, Garoppolo became a a guy that we got interested in in New England. And Garoppolo, from watching him practice, from being around the kid, Garoppolo will be a very good starting quarterback in the National Football League that can lead a team to a playoff game. There's no doubt in my mind about that. If I was a GM in the league, I would trade for Garoppolo. The 12th pick overall in this draft would be well worth trading for Garoppolo because you're not going to rep- the name you're putting in at 12. Garoppolo is going to be better than him. You take one of those other quarterbacks. Now I think Deshaun Watson's a fabulous player. His accuracy bothers me, but you put him in or Garoppolo or the North Carolina quarterback who's only started one season. Garoppolo, you what? You put enough tape together on Garoppolo, it's impressive. I'll give you one name. Mike Lennon's going to get huge interest from a lot of teams in this free agent market because Mike Lennon has some tape of him playing well in a preseason. And some teams are going to think Mike Lennon can lead them to there, and Garoppolo is better than Glennon. And that's the thing about Garoppolo is, is that you've seen the tape, first of all. He's only, gonna, he's only 25. You, and the, what is interesting to me about him is that the contract, in a way, opens up even more of a, of a market for him. Because if you're a team like Chicago or if you're a team like Cleveland, you can afford to sign him because you have the room to do it. It's not totally it, – it, it's not prohibitive. You can sign him to an extension if you want to. But if you're a team like Houston or you're a team that's a little bit more strapped, you do have the option to wait because he's only making that $1.1 million this year. So that contract right. is is almost the most valuable part of it all because he can be whatever you want him to be as a as a piece as a financial piece and with the way he's played and with the dearth of quarterbacks around I think that opens up ten or twelve teams to say okay maybe he is our guy yeah I mean I have basically eleven teams that 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 could use a quarterback and and. You know, I have Kansas City and Arizona. They have starting quarterbacks. Denver has a couple guys. But, I mean, when you boil the roster down, but then you have the group of seven that really need quarterbacks. Now, Jacksonville and Los Angeles won't admit they need quarterbacks, but they do. San Francisco, Chicago, Buffalo, the Jets, and Cleveland, there's no dispute. Those five teams need quarterbacks. And that's a fairly substantial market. That's 11 teams that you just lump in there. And that's not counting some other teams. And that's not counting what Washington does with Kirk Cousins. And the effect of all that has come forward. So the supply is not great. The demand is. And I think that's what makes Garoppolo so attractive. And the fact that he plays well and he's a great kid adds into it. This isn't a kid who's going to buck to the pressure of the system or is going to go somewhere. He's He's a guy that can fit. If he was in San Francisco with Kyle Shanahan's offense, it would be dynamic. 
I love it. I mean, trust me that I, I'm wanting something like that. If he doesn't come to Chicago, I wouldn't mind him ending up in San Francisco. Hey, and he's, there's no doubt he's a good kid. He's from the mid suburban league, man. And that's where he played his high school <laughs> ball. We're the, we're the best kids. All right. Uh, let's do Atlanta very quickly. There's not as much to talk about. I don't think because for me, the number one factor with them is Shanahan. I, I just don't think you can say, Oh, the personnel is coming back. The offense is going to be really good again. Do I think the offense can be good with Sharkeesian? Cause he has been a play caller before he runs a West coast system that has some of the same elements. Yes. Two things though. One, I think Shanahan is special. You and I have talked about this. I, I think he's special. I really do. And two, continuity with an offensive coordinator play caller and quarterback really matters. It just switching yeah. dudes in and out every two years. Why do you think Pittsburgh is so good? Why do you think, even though I don't like McCarthy Rogers has been able to do what he's been able to do same with McDaniels and Brady. It really helps to hear that same voice in your ear over and over again and bringing in a new one, no matter how much continuity you have, no, much how, no matter how much faith you have in him, there's going to inevitably be a drop off. Yeah, I think what Kyle has always done historically in his career, and I used to kid him all the time about him playing with bad offensive lines and still being able to move the football. And we talked about this last week on the podcast about how I know pro football focus has Atlanta's offensive line as the sixth best in football, which I thought was really a joke. I mean, they gave up five sacks in a game to a team that really wasn't always the, the greatest pass rush. <laughs> right. So I think the challenge is going to be for Steve Sarkeesian is how has he managed this offensive line the way yeah. that – that, that Kyle has been able to do because Jake Matthews, even though he's a first-round pick, hasn't played to that level. The Ryan Schrader's the free agent at right tackle. You know, you're going to need a right tackle. They don't have depth in the offensive line. Alex Mack is a great player. The two guards weren't. And I think that even though you say we're running a West Coast offense and that can help, I think Kyle's ability to hide and mask the offensive line was an untold story all season for the Atlanta Falcons' success on offense. Play action, I'm baby. not sure Steve – I'm not sure Steve can do that. I think Steve's in a challenging role. I mean, he's day one install of the West Coast offense. I don't see his game plans being as creative or as interesting as Kyle's. I think there's going to be a slight drop-off. Now, that being said, they've got great talent, and Matt Ryan's played really well. But there will be a slight drop-off because that offensive line will keep getting exposed unless they fix it. And Schra- they signed Schrader. They gave him a kind of a new deal, so he's going to be there. So they have him and Mac locked up for a little bit. And then Matthews is going to cut is coming to the end of his rookie deal. So, and those guards aren't exactly pieces you'd want to keep anyway. I mean, when you're looking at areas, they could improve both of those spots. You could get somebody that would be an upgrade there. I mean, Chris Chester's not you getting know, any younger. And everybody says that though, Robert, everybody says that it's hard to find guards. It's hard to find. It's hard to yeah. find really good guards. Everybody says, well, you can find a guard in there. And then you look at these teams, some of these teams' guards, and you say you can't, you know. And the West, the way Kyle and that zone, outside zone scheme works, is they're always about the second level, not the first level. Yeah. And when you have to, when you have to find guards that can do that, that's why Chester at light the way he plays. That's why Levitri is light in the way he plays because it's always about getting to the second level, not powering the first level off. It's hard to find guards, and and I think that it's going to be a challenge this off season for them to do that. And then they need more depth on defense. I mean, look, this defense. They'll get Trufant back, which they desperately needed. That'll certainly help them. And they just got to keep improving their defense, especially their defensive front. Because like you talked about earlier in the podcast, Vic Beasley was invisible in the game. They need their best players to step up. And I think they're going to need more defensive linemen. The nice part is that they get two back. And with the guys that they're going to back from injury that are essentially just found money compared to the defense we saw on Sunday are Trufant, which is the biggest piece, obviously. And then, 
Derek Shelby, who they signed this offseason, and Adrian Claiborne, which those guys aren't stars by any stretch. They're not paid like it, but they would have been nice as part of that defensive rotation in this game. Those are the types of yeah, players think, they missed I, I on think Sunday. Claiborne, Claiborne would have been more effective for them in there. I think there's no doubt. He would have given Grady Jarrett some rest. Yep. He would have given Babineau some rest. I mean, I think there's no question that they would have. And I tell you, the guy that really has come on is Hegeman. Hegeman played better in that game, and if he, keep, if he keeps playing, now he's always been a little bit of an underachiever, but the level of play that he played in that game was pretty impressive and if he can stay at that level it'll be really helpful are you surprised that they got rid of the defensive coordinator or does that just seem like no. not that big of a deal considering it's Quinn's defense no because if you noticed Quinn was started calling the plays midway through the season I mean yeah. this was going to happen whether they won the Super Bowl or not Quinn was not happy with their defense and Quinn took over the defensive play calling he took over the defense midseason and I think that this move was definitely going to happen. I think he definitely, if you're running the Seattle scheme, you've got to have somebody that understands it completely and gets how you play cover six and how you play man-to-man and how they look the same but how they play differently and how you pass things off. And I think for Richard Smith, who never really been in the system, I think it was a lot easier for Dan Quinn to teach it himself than to teach it to, to Smith, who then teaches it to the players. So I, I think this was a move that was going to happen whether they lost the opening game to Seattle in the playoffs or whether they won the Super Bowl. I think this was going to happen. All right, Mike, that's all the time we got. Uh, this has been right, really buddy. fun. I can't wait to keep doing this. Let's uh, take a break, get some rest, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Robert. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. See ya. And we are now welcomed by Danny Kelly. Hey, buddy. Hey, how's it going, man? I'm good, man. I wanted to chat with you about <laughs> this game before we went away for a while because you and I haven't yeah. talked about it. I know none of your feelings. I know, man. And it's kind of funny just because... Like it was such a roller coaster of emotions on Sunday. And, you know, obviously I'm guessing you guys, you and Kevin who were at the game probably were, were already kind of starting in on your articles. Um, you know, third quarter when it was 25 to three or, or I should say 28 to three. And, and then pretty much everything got scrapped as the fourth quarter got going. And so it was just uh man, what a freaking crazy game. I, I, you know, I was pretty speechless when it ended. And, you know, we're, we're obviously paid to kind of react to stuff like this, but I just like had, I was just, I didn't know how to react. It was, it was just like the craziest game I've ever seen. Yeah. And, and there was an element of that, you know, as it was going, it was like, oh, well, you know, I'll write about the Falcons and kind of how they were built. And it's interesting yeah. to me. They all kind of, they all contributed in some way. In fact, like Dwight Freeney's making things happen. And you know, it's that combined with Gabriel and the actual pillars. And I didn't start writing it because I usually don't, because I, I like to actually watch the game. Because if something like that happens, I want to know. Mm-hmm. And then as it was ending, I was like, well, I, what am I going to do now? And, <laughs> yeah. and Kevin was already going to write about Brady. So I'm sitting there scrambling. I, was like, I guess I'll just go down and see how fucking depressing it is down there. <laughs> like, yeah. That always has interested me more than the flip side of it. But when the, when the Seahawks came back to beat Green Bay a couple of years ago, I didn't think I wasn't going to write about the Seahawks because that wasn't interesting to me. The idea of blowing a 25, 7 million people were going to write about how great Brady was after that right. game. Right. I, for, in my mind, it was much more interesting to see what it was like to blow a 25 point lead. And that's yeah, what I tried yeah. to go down and do. And I don't I mean, it's hard to do it justice in that moment, especially when you're pivoting to it in that exact instance. But that was my thought process. Yeah, it um, it was. It's kind of funny because I'm in Seattle, you know, Seahawks fan and this game was definitely giving me some, some PTSD of just kind of like the ending of the Super Bowl 49 uh, when obviously the Patriots had the miraculous interception, the goal line and won the game and everyone thought the Seahawks were going to win, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's funny because 
in a way it's like now the Falcons Falcons fans kind of like take on Seahawks fans like burden of being like the worst Super Bowl loss ever. It's I mean, I just feel so bad for Falcons fans right now because I've I've kind of like, you know, lived that that just crushing defeat, you know, as a fan. And so I don't know. It it was uh, it was exciting on one hand, and and like just for as a football fan, it was like holy crap! Like this is unprecedented or whatever. And but at the same time, I was like, man, it's gonna suck to be a Falcons fan this summer because just I mean, the Seahawks are still talking about their loss. Like they had several blowups this year where they're still talking about a game from two years ago. You know. So we'll chat about that. I want to talk about the Falcons and that kind of idea a little bit later because I I do feel like that's important to address as we think about mm-hmm. their offseason. Lombardi and I kind of chatted more about the nuts and bolts of it all personnel wise, but that matters. First of all, I want to get yeah. into the game a little bit just from your perspective. I we didn't get to watch the end zone tape because it's not up there. Right. So yeah. I, we just I just watched the broadcast again. I assume you did as well. Yep. Were there yep. a couple things that stuck out to you watching it again that you didn't pick up on the first time? I don't think I the first game I mean I know they talked about it a little bit but I didn't realize quite as quite so much how much man Atlanta was running early on yeah and it was kind of like I I saw an interview with uh, Bill Belichick afterwards that was really great um, where they were talking to you know the broadcast team and it was he was basically saying you know early on they declared that they were going to do cover one you know man coverage and that was the game that was what it was going to be So I was really watching for that and kind of like what the Patriots did to sort of beat that. They were doing a lot of sort of the man beater stuff, you know, trips, you know, formations, moving guys around, um, stacking crossers. Exactly. Yeah. Get guys caught up in the traffic, you know, the defenders caught up in the traffic as you kind of go across the field or whatever. Um, you know, they had a couple of plays where in the second half they, they did that. Like they, they had a trips on one side and then they just had Malcolm uh, Mitchell line up on the outside and they just ran comebacks to him a couple of times. Yep. And when they were going, they were going at him because without that help, you know, that the corners got to play off a little bit and you're going to have exactly. that one step where you can, if you time it well, you're going to get it. Exactly. And I was watching the pick six play. I don't know if you got you and you and uh... we talked about it a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Cause I was thinking that one was an interesting play. Um, just they based on they the planned that. that. The, the, I was uh, Ricardo Allen was talking about it a little bit afterward, and they they were trying to do this thing where they were trapping Edelman, where they were going to do that at, mm-hmm. one, at least at some point. They were going to come off him at one point and do that. They didn't know when they were, it was going to happen, but oh, that was man. something they were planning on over the course of the half. They had talked about it all week where they were going to trap him a little bit when they would go to stuff like that against man. So that That's was just a choice that Robert Alford made. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, like there would have been a lot of really cool conversations to be had about the Falcons' <laughs> defensive game plan if the game had gone a certain different way (laughs) i know i know and it's crazy because as i was watching the game over i mean it it was just there were so many cool like x's and o's things that we could have talked about with shanahan obviously now the the narrative is is what happened in the second half and kind of how things fell apart but which like let's keep talking about that that's really fun like oh yeah this guy's (laughs) this guy's a bum now like just (laughs) fuck this guy the 49ers are screwed there's no way they want him anymore Yeah, and I definitely don't feel that way. I mean, he, the the what he what happened in the second half doesn't doesn't over you know it doesn't trump anything that happened. Nineteen other games, <laughs> right? I, the other the other play that I just made a note of for the Falcons that I thought was really cool was the touchdown to pass to Tevin Coleman, where he lined up basically they were on like the six or seven yard line I can't remember and they lined him up in the, on the left side 
uh, in shotgun right next to Matt Ryan. Yep. And they had trips on the right, trips formation, three guy, three receivers on the right. Those three receivers basically all ran kind of like forward routes. I don't know exactly what their routes were. They were all but, clearing out pretty much. I mean, they essentially right. just flooded the left side of the field from the right. Right, exactly. And and so uh, what that did was create a whole bunch of traffic for Ninkovich. And, and Coleman came out from, from started on the left, basically just ran an, a route towards the sideline to the right. And Ninkovich just, you know, couldn't get through the traffic. He had no chance. He, I mean, even if there wasn't any traffic, he probably would have had no chance. Honestly, probably, yeah, because because Coleman's just so fast. But I, I really thought that play was great. And I mean, there, there I loved the Freeman plays. touchdown. It, it was kind of a similar scenario where they are on the six or seven yard line. They motion Julio down tight, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then they Julio sprints across, and it looks like a play action pass that they're going to come back with. And Ryan sold it on the fake. So he comes out with it and that's the type of stuff they love to do. They love sending, I guess loved. I mean, I guess it's past tense now. Damn it. They, they really enjoyed sending all the action one way and coming back with it. Usually mm-hmm. it was with a play action pass, but this time they used the run as the, as the counter action, which right. is just like, Jesus Christ, man, <laughs> like that is uh, awesome. Like, yeah. And the other thing uh, we're going to, uh, the last bit of Falcons, Offense nerdery because it's it's dead now. So we have to milk this as much as we can. <laughs> right. The, when they were using Coleman and I, I, I said this before the game, I thought they were going to use Coleman and Freeman together more in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And can you remember the last time you saw them lined up and shotgun on either side of each other? No, that was they awesome. never do that. <laughs> and they use like they use it three or four times, and it was different every single time, which mm-hmm. is just not surprising, but was very interesting, and it worked. Oh, absolutely. There was. Uh... I can't remember what the play was, but they basically, I mean, they would have Coleman acting as a de facto fullback at a a few different cases. Yeah. And I mean, I just think, yeah, we talked about it before the game. I think it's such a cool wrinkle to see them both on the field at the same time. I'm curious to see how many snaps they did do that because it was quite a few. It's probably more than 10. Um, It was right around there. I would say they used that two back shotgun formation three times. I want to say, okay. Okay, cool. Um, but then but yeah. they had Coleman line up as a receiver a bunch. So I mean, it might have gotten up toward 10. Yeah. Well, uh, I, well I, it might have been less than 10 because they didn't play that yeah. many plays. That's what I was going to say. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's like they played, I don't even, they had like 43 total plays all game, which is just crazy. I mean, did you guys talk about the disparity of plays? Uh, we didn't really on that. We, Kevin and I did. And Mike yeah. and I, we kind of just chat about why they got so tired. Just because they're not yeah. only are they playing they're on the field a lot, but playing man coverage, he he it was a good comparison. It's essentially like full court pressing in basketball the entire game. Right, totally. And they just ran out of gas. I yeah. Mean, the Patriots, and that was another thing that I kind of thought about as I was rewatching the game. It was like in the first quarter, in the first half, first quarter, first second quarter, they were running. The Patriots did a lot of those like sort of. Um, you know, where Brady would sort of try and loft it up over man coverage on like a, a, on either a wheel route or a seam route up the, you know, up the numbers. Um, and on, I think two or at least three occasions, the, the Falcons kind of very, very late got their hand up in the passing lane and, and knocked the ball out as the ball was arriving. And, you know, that's just kind of, that's Brady trying to pick on man coverage. You throw to the guy, if you can see the defender's numbers and, and his name, you know, that that's a good throw for him. And early in the game, the Falcons were making plays on those. Late in the game, I remember um, there was a pass down the seam to Martellus Bennett that set them up inside the 10-yard line. And it was... We talked about that throw. 
Yeah, man. And, and so like there were just plays that weren't working in the first half definitely worked in the second half. You know what I mean? And it was just because I think they just ran out of gas and, and they started getting tired and they didn't really change up a whole lot of stuff. I mean, they played a lot of zone in the red zone and New England kind of went to their, their zone beating stuff in the red zone, I think. And and they were playing a little bit more off with their coverage and everything like that. And so things changed in the red zone, but it was a lot of man, man coverage beaters, like from 20 to 20. So uh, those are some of the things I noticed rewatching the game. Yeah, I, I totally agree. All right, let's, uh, let's chat about the demise of Kyle Shanahan's time in Atlanta, mostly in, so we could talk about Steve Car- Sarkeesian, who, who you have at least some knowledge of. More right. knowledge than I do because he was the head coach <laughs> in Washington for a while. You yep. live in Seattle. I don't schematically. What are your thoughts? How much do you know about Steve, his offense, and what do you think it's? How do you think it's going to fit with this group of players? Well, I'm not. I don't know. I, I mean, I obviously with our job, we're we're very focused on the NFL and stuff exactly. Like that. I mean, so, like, I don't know his offense intimately or anything like that. I know that he runs a West Coast offense style. Um, you know, it, when he was with Washington, he did a good job of sort of building offenses that catered to his quarterback strengths. Like he made Keith price look pretty damn good for, for a couple of years there in, in Washington. And so Jay Clocker was the eighth overall pick in the draft. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's, you know, he, he, he did a good job of catering and sort of tailor custom tailoring the offense to what the strengths of his quarterback was. So I think in that sense, there's definitely some optimism. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I don't remember, there wasn't a ton of talk, at least in Seattle, that I remember where it was like he was this offensive genius necessarily. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think he was a good, competent offensive coach. Um, but I mean, there was, you know, there was always sort of the narrative that he what he didn't do quite enough to make them, you know, like a, a top ten team or even a top twenty five team when the time he was here. I think they went to. They went to a couple of bowl games when he was here and everything like that and, and kind of put Washington back on the map a little bit. But it was still I mean, he, he wasn't like, you know, changing the world over here. And so, you know, it's the thing, though, that's a, that's a different conversation with college coaches. And it's why when I asked about Sarkeesian's offense, people like are like recruiting. Well, it's like he always a drunk and he didn't do a lot. It's like, well, I don't give a fuck about either of those things. I, I care about <laughs> what the offense looks like because he doesn't have to right. get the players now. He's literally the offensive coach. He's going to call the plays. I, I'm, I'm curious right. how good he is at the calling of the plays. It's all I want to know about. <laughs> so just throw me a bone here, people. <laughs> so, I mean, and that's what I'm interested in. I mean, it is. And one of the things I wrote about today that I thought was interesting, and it's, it gives a little bit of a different spin, because say they bring on the floor, who is the quarterback's coach, and they say, all right, you be the, the coordinator now because we want to keep this offense. And you see that sometimes. When a coordinator get hired away, they just promote within with they promote from within in order to maintain the offense. Right. That works in some ways, but it also doesn't work in other ways because play calling, as we've kind of found with Kyle Shanahan, is an art unto itself. Mm-hmm. And if you've never done it before, it's not a guarantee that you'll be able to do it just because you know the offense. Right. With Scar- with Sarkeesian, you have a guy who knows how to play. He's a play caller. He knows how to do that. Now it's just a matter of whether or not the offense can fit with the personnel. And that is going to take time. Inevitably, when you change coordinators, there's going to be a drop off just because when you hear a different person's voice, it matters. And so if we're looking at this offense being the same this year, next year as it was this year, this ain't going to happen. 
I mean, it, it goes to, I mean, the, the clip that we have referenced several times you wrote about in your article where Matt Ryan is talking to Shanahan. He's like, man, I can't wait till I know this offense inside and out because we're going to kill people with it. Yeah. And I mean, they, Sarkeesian can come in and run similar language and, and run a very similar like style of offense, but it's going to be his offense because he's not going to just all of a sudden adopt, you know, the quote Shanahan offense. He's going to be running some of the same plays and everything, but it's just going to be different. And there's so many intricacies in any offense, just based on option routes, you know, the language necessarily, it might change a little bit. Um, You know, just how the, how the line blocks, how receivers run, how they block you know, everything. It's just, there's so many things to learn that I I agree. It's like, you can't expect it. I mean, no one's going to expect it to be as good as it was this year. And the thing is, if Shanahan had come back, you probably wouldn't expect it to be as good. Because when you have offenses like this, you need a little bit of luck to have a team that averages 6.9 yards per play and 9.3 yards per attempt. That happens because you get some breaks. And one of those breaks is all five of their linemen played 16 games this year. All five. Like, you need that kind of stuff. That doesn't happen two years in a row for the most part. So it was unlikely that they were going to have as cushy of an environment for Ryan to play in next year anyway. Taylor Gabriel's restricted free agent, shit like that. And then now you add a completely new wrinkle to it. So the question for Atlanta is, can the defense with the young players that have developed over the second half of the season, with Claiborne, Trufant, and guys like Derek Shelby coming back, and however you draft, will their improvement be enough for this team to stay on the same level it was a year ago? I don't buy the Super Bowl hangover, really. I think that for the most part, teams get bad for certain reasons. It's not because they lost in the Super Bowl. Like the Seahawks were fine. <laughs> they, right. Losing in the Se- in the Super Bowl did not kill the Seahawks. They brought back all their players and they were fine. So <laughs> I think that's one of the elements is that you lose your coordinator. That's one wrinkle. Two, who's mm-hmm. going, who's leaving. The Panthers started like six new corners last year. They brought but their entire offensive line, who was healthy the year before, got hurt. That stuff right. is, is the reason you lose. They played the toughest schedule in the league. It's not because they lost in the Super Bowl. So if is Atlanta, when, when you have just these ebbs and flows of your units, if we already concede Atlanta's offense is going to be worse, the question is, do they go from first to 14th, or do they go from first to 13th? sixth and does their defense go from 27th to 17th because if you do that then you can win 11 games again oh yeah absolutely um and i mean yeah it's like i don't know it's i'm with you on the super bowl hangover thing i think there's a like a slight psychological thing to overcome and everything and whatever but like most of it is like very variables like like you're getting your players are leaving because they're Super Bowl champions now, and or they're and, Super Bowl, they're, they played in the Super Bowl, or they or got they Team C more though. Yes, exactly, that happens. Exactly. Um, and I mean, it's just it's it's a nature of the beast. Plus, there's just so, I mean, there's so much parity in the first place. Like even I mean, you see so much disparity in, in how teams are year to year in the first place. And when you have to overcome losing people in free agency and, and all that, you know, you're furthered back in the draft order. So you're not getting as prime of draft choices, all that like adds up. So whatever. But um, I mean, yeah, with the, with the Falcons. So now they're losing both of their coordinators actually. I mean, cause, cause Mike Smith was let go today. Richard Smith. <laughs> shit. Sorry. Let me, it doesn't matter. Mike Smith used to be their head coach. It's reasonable that that would happen. <laughs> 
the most general name ever, Mike Smith. Uh, and, and, Smith R- and Dick Smith isn't much better. <laughs> My bad. Uh, well, yeah, so uh, maybe that actually is kind of indicative, though, because I don't think he was actually running the defense at this point. I think He it, wasn't. Lombardi said right. the last half of the season Quinn was calling the plays. That's Quinn's <laughs> defense. Like, I don't right, – right. I'm not too worried about that. This is like whoever the offensive coordinator is – I'm trying to think of one that in like in, in New Orleans, like who's the offensive right. coordinator in New Orleans? The answer is who cares? <laughs> I genuinely don't know. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyways, but I mean, so they have to overcome stuff like that. But I do think, I mean, like if you look at how well their defense played over the second half of the year, I think there's a lot of reason to believe that they're going to be a lot better next year. Um, I mean, your Dion Jones MVP pick was looking pretty good through like first two quarters. And I've become really good at this. I don't know why. There's, <laughs> it's the one talent I have. I can pick the super long shot that I feel like will affect the game in some way, and it, he will for two and a half quarters, and then it won't matter. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I don't know. I think that their defense is set up to improve quite a bit. And I totally there's, agree. There's a lot of talent there. So, I mean, for me, it's, you know, obviously you have to overcome sort of this devastating loss, but I think that there's a lot of reason to be positive still in Atlanta. I mean, I, I still think their offense is going to be good. I agree. I think it's going to be good. It's just, will their defense be improve enough to make up for the gap in being right. a world changing offense to a very good offense? That's the thing. Right. Those are the kind of small shifts that do end up mattering. I think the offensive personnel stay mostly the same. You know, those guys are mm-hmm. all locked up for the most part. I think they can give themselves some wiggle room by retooling Ryan's contract. He's making 23.8 this year, which is mm-hmm. a shitload of money. So if they think they're going to keep him around anyway, it may make sense to give yourself a little bit of cap relief by extending him. Yeah. So if you do that, then maybe you try to go out and get a defensive piece. You know, I don't guy like Melvin Ingram, somebody that will be expensive, but could really add an element to your team as a pass rusher. I think that those are the spots they need and we'll see. I'm excited for this team moving forward. I know that losing Shanahan is a big deal, but I think lost in how good of a coach Shanahan is, is how brilliant Dan Quinn was over the second half of the season. That game plan that they trotted out there against the wing one was fucking great. I mean, I yeah. And it was working really, really well. I mean, yep. we can get into how it all fell apart. And I think that some of it just comes down to the offense, not executing, you know, what they should have executed. But because, because the defense was just on the field for way too many plays. Like you can't expect any defense to play well when they're 99 plays. Like that is absurd. Totally. And I talked to Lombardi about this. Uh, the running the ball choices probably could have been different, but there was only probably one play where I thought, ah, they should have run it there instead of thrown it. The issue to me right. more so was they're snapping the ball with 15 seconds off the play clock. Yeah. And they, they did that a lot. And that's just the type of thing where when you have a lot of confidence in your offense and you just get rolling, it's like, oh, we're just going to play. It's right. like, oh. and, and I understand that. And I don't begrudge a team for that. To me, being conservative when you shouldn't is still much greater of a sin but it still is just tough <laughs> right. to watch over again. It's like, man, I just, you, you snap the ball 10 seconds later on two of these plays. This may go completely different for me. I, it's just situational football, like one one Like, I mean, you have, okay, here's what I like. Cause I was trying to frame my sort of opinion on this game and like whose fault it was and all that. I think that you're right. Like there's like 16 or 20 plays that go differently in this game. And it's, it's a different, like the, the Falcons win, like the, the Patriots needed like a succession of like literally almost 20 plays to get this, to get the win. And so, you know, there's not one thing, but when you have a 25 point lead with what is it like a couple minutes left in the third quarter, there, there's a reason 
the win probability algorithm or whatever says you have a 99.7% chance of winning. It's because most of the time teams are not going to have enough possessions to get to overcome that, you know, the grade of a lead It's just yeah. not enough time. And the way that the way that the Falcons were sort of just, it almost felt like they were like in hurry up, you know? Um, to me, that was like the biggest deal. It's like there was a few plays that they should have run the ball, but they weren't using the clock in new England ended the game. They, they had a 25 point. They came back from 25 points in the third quarter and they had two timeouts left when the game was when regulation ended. I saw you point they, that out. That is absurd. Like you didn't make them use their timeouts. Yeah. Like to me, that's the biggest sin is like, it was so bad of, of, of time of just game like management that they didn't use those. They only use one timeout in the whole second half. 25 yeah. point lead. I know. I know. That's but th- th- there's so many things like that. The, the Freeman or excuse me, the Hightower strip sack, right? So Dante Hightower said after the game that they had run that a couple different times, that exact kind of protection scheme. And when they did those other times, Freeman just blocked him. Right. And on that play, he just didn't. He just he was right there, and he chose not to hit him because he was releasing he was whatever. Yeah. And and it, it, Shannon said after that was his guy. And I'm sitting here watching a gif of it right now. The Barnwell just tweeted, they have a guy wide open down the middle of the field. It's a fucking touchdown. Oh like if God. if he blocks him, that is the it is a touchdown with a decent throw. <laughs> and that's why it's hard to go against who they are as an offense and just say, well, you should have run the ball. If that, if Devontae Freeman blocks a dude, who cares? The game is over. I mean, it's, it's, we, we laud Kyle Shanahan for just stepping on their throats. Right. And it, I don't know. It, it's tough for me because it's a matter of execution on every level. It's not just a matter yeah. of who's calling the play. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. And it, it's, like I said, you can't blame one thing. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's it's just tough though because it, it well I mean clearly it was like a complete collapse on every level. Like the defense yes. collapsed. So so you know I I don't know. It, it's tough. It's just really really tough. It's you could point to any number of different things and that's like oh th- that that would have been the difference in the game there. It's over if they do this one thing differently. You know, Hightower is the guy that's going to be the hero in some ways. Just the the place he made. The other guy that just was fantastic on the stretch was Trey Flowers. And mm-hmm. he, he made like seven and over the course of the whole game, not even down the stretch, his sack on Ryan early on was thwarted a drive in the first quarter. That was a big mm-hmm. play. And he made a tat. He made a play on the one where Matthew's got the holding call on second and one that pushed them back to second and 11. Uh-huh. Go back and watch what Trey flowers does to Andy Levitre on that play. It, <laughs> it should be a, it should be illegal. I mean, it, it, it's just unbelievable just control and hand usage pinpoint defensive line play. And that was the thing is even over the course of that stretch, they believe they can win. They knew on right. at every single point that they could still win. And that matters. And the way that those guys were playing, it was little tiny things that allowed them to make those plays. And I don't even think you make those. If you feel like the game is over. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they all had to, to believe and keep playing like their asses off. You see a lot of teams give up when they're down by 25, you know, so, I mean, definitely credit to the Patriots for that. I think Flower, I like Flowers a lot. I mean, he plays with really good leverage. Um, I think when I just think of him, he's just all about leverage. It's almost like I'm not comparing him to Aaron Donald at all, believe me. But, like, he has the same sort of ability to leverage his size and length and everything really, really well. And he's going to be a really good player. I, I think yeah. that he's going to be a nice piece for them moving forward. I mean, he's a kid. 
How old is how old right. is Trey Flowers? He's twenty three. Like he's gonna be fine. Crazy. Yeah, I mean the defense definitely. How many times they sack him? Like five times or something like that. Yes, more than any other more than any other game in the, game in the season. Five times. Wow. I mean that that mattered. He had never oh, he hadn't absolutely. been sacked five times all year. Yeah, that was huge. And I mean, I think you're right. Like it probably killed like. I mean, it probably killed all five of the drives there. I can't remember if they scored on any of the ones that he got sacked on, but at least three or four of them. And something that's huge against a team who scored more points per drive than any team in the NFL this year and in many years. And then who were scoring even more points per drive in the playoffs. So, I mean, it was like, if you kill a few of their drives, like it's a different game. By the way, the coach's tape is up now. Of course it is, right? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh, son of a bitch. Even, I think, and it was not still up. So, yeah, awesome. I uh, Also, the one thing I wanted to talk about before we get out of here, Lombardi and I talked about the free agents a little bit, New England-wise, so we can skip that. I just wanted to ask you where you want Garoppolo to end up. <laughs> where do I want him to end up? That's a great question. Um, I mean, it makes sense... One of these teams that desperately like San Francisco would be fun, but I, don't I know. would love to see him there. I just don't know if that'd be a good enough. I don't know if the situation there is good enough to warrant me wanting him there. I feel like that's just me being mean to Jimmy Garoppolo and <laughs> put him in the shittiest situation. What, exactly. what about uh, Chicago? I would take him. I take him in a heartbeat, yeah. man. I, I, that's fine with me. If you want to deal a second round pick for Jimmy Garoppolo, if that's enough to get him, I'm in, let's do this. Well, what about if it's a first round pick? But we have the third overall pick, so I'll pass on that. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Maybe a trade back or something like that. <laughs> they tra- that's fine. That's fine. I, 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 the third overall pick is a little too rich for my boy. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. I, I, I would agree. I mean, there's just... I wonder if the whole um, Brock Osweiler experiment failure this year is going to make it harder for the Patriots to trade him or if it's just there's just too much demand for quarterbacks at this point. I think there's too much demand for quarterbacks yeah I mean that that to me is gonna gonna be one of the interesting free agency storylines is just I mean I get the Brock Osweiler thing was such a disaster for Houston that I don't know does it make people gun shy but I, I agree with you I probably it's it's just there's so so many teams right now that need quarterbacks that it might not matter yeah, I don't think it will matter. I think somebody will deal for him, and I, I think the New England yep. should do it. I mean, just if you can get a first-round pick of any kind for a guy that probably is going to be your backup that you would need to re-sign, and he'd maybe be sitting on the bench for a chunk of that contract, it just I think you got to do it. Yeah. All right, man. I think that's all we got. I uh, This is it. This is fun, yeah. man. Good Crazy. season. The season's over. Yeah. I can't believe year one is in the books. It, it feels like just yesterday uh, we launched the site, and it's been seven full months, eight full months. And that's it. I mean, that's the end of the season. And before we know, we'll be back. But for now, I don't know what you're going to do. I'm going to go sit in the movie theater for like six straight days. <laughs> I know. I need to like turn off my brain. I kept telling Ryan, my editor, like, I, I, he, you know, like we go through and, and edit articles and kind of like shoot ideas off of each other. And like I told him so many times in the last like two weeks, my brain isn't working. Like, it's just like I got nothing left. Uh, it was like the end of the marathon you just kind of hit the wall so i'm definitely ready for a little bit of a break but we don't have a lot of time because the combine's coming up so combine's um, coming up this is going to be our last show until the combine i I am making that executive editorial decision right now (laughs) fair enough fair enough so we are we'll be back with shows from indy when the combine heats up again we'll all be there there'll be a bunch of other people there so 
we'll definitely get some voices on the show when that rolls around at the end of February. But until then, I just want to say thank you to everyone for listening all season. This has been a blast. I feel like uh, me, Danny and Kevin, I think we can speak for him. I've been really proud to work together and to kind of bring this stuff to you. I feel like it's going to be fun moving forward. We're excited to have Mike on board. And I, all I believe is that year two will be better than year one. And it's going to be nice to get a couple days, but I'm very excited to get <laughs> back to it when we do. Same here, man. It was an honor working with you. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of what we did. And I, I'm already looking forward to next year. I think we're going to just bigger and better. I totally agree. All right, bud. Thanks to everybody for listening and uh, have a good off season, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs>